Welcome back to the Brawn Body Podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Today, we're going to be talking about sucralose, the artificial sweetener, and we're going to be talking about high-intensity interval training, or HIT, as it's commonly called, uh, specifically HIT microcycles. So I've got a few really good articles lined up that I'm excited to walk you through and kind of arrive to a general consensus on both of these topics. So with that, we're going to start by diving into artificial sweeteners. And I think I've talked about these in some past podcast episodes, but essentially artificial sweeteners are modified forms of sugar that are indigestible. So the body does not absorb these, it does not digest these. The belief is that they just pass through unharmed. So you get the sweeter taste sensation without any kind of impact on the body. Well, uh, we know that's not entirely true. Um, There's a whole host of research that links artificial sweeteners to gut problems, uh, basically just destroys your microbiome and your gut health, uh, among other things, such as certain types of cancers and even different neurological diseases and many others. Now, among artificial sweeteners, the most common one we see specifically in the health and fitness realm is sucralose. It's very difficult to find supplements that do not contain sucralose. I only consume supplements that do not have sucralose. Um, So you're looking for the naturally flavored, naturally sweetened uh, stevia variations on things, not sucralose. And I know there's debate on if stevia is, um, you know, a health food or not. But the way I look at it is it's plant-based, it's natural, it was less processed, it did not come from a lab, whereas sucralose was produced in a lab-based setting because they have to artificially modify sugar to produce it. So again, artificial sweetener. So this study... This is actually published in March of 2020, uh, so pretty recent, and it was published in Cell Metabolism, and it is called Short-Term Consumption of Sucralose with, but not without, Carbohydrate Impairs Neural and Metabolic Sensitivity to Sugar in Humans. So the title kind of gives away what you're going to be looking at with this article, right? So basically... Insulin sensitivity, which remember, insulin is that key storage hormone for your body. So we secrete insulin in response to something like a meal, uh, especially high carbohydrates, and it allows us to store uh, different macromolecules like carbohydrates, proteins, fats, that sort of thing um, in our body. Now, insulin sensitivity specifically is how your body responds to that insulin. So if you have an ideal amount of insulin sensitivity, a good insulin sensitivity would be you don't need to secrete much insulin to have a good effect. So you get a lot out of a little, if that makes sense. What we often see is insulin sensitivity becomes compromised, causing and contributing to various metabolic conditions such as obesity and diabetes. So Essentially, if you have to secrete a lot of insulin, 
in response to a little amount of carbohydrate or a small meal or something along those lines, then you have some insulin dysfunction, you have issues with your insulin sensitivity and uh, metabolic dysfunction as a result because you have to secrete a lot more hormone than you should have to to get the same result. So your body has to work harder. It's inefficient. And again, that's not how we want to um, function ideally because as we said, it contributes to disease. So this study was looking at combinations of the sucralose with carbohydrate, sucralose on its own and carbohydrate on its own, and how that impacts insulin sensitivity. So as the study said, basically the impact of sucralose on insulin sensitivity when it's straight sucralose, only sucralose, is the same as straight carbohydrate. So they are one and the same from the research purposes. Cool. However, the combination of sucralose and carbohydrate uh, significantly impairs insulin sensitivity. So on their own, they basically do the same thing, regardless of caloric content. Because remember, one gram of carbohydrates contains four uh, calories. Sucralose technically contains zero. However, this study showed that they are doing one and the same thing. But together, they're having that very detrimental effect on insulin sensitivity. And essentially, they're linking the metabolic impairment of the impaired insulin sensitivity to decreased neural responses to sugar. So what that means is impaired insulin sensitivity, right? You consume the sugar, you consume the carbohydrate, and your uh, nervous system, which your neuroendocrine system, they're kind of tied one and the same together. Uh, we talked about that in the neuroscience podcast. Um, basically, there's issues higher up. So we, you know, in general, we know that consuming high sugar diets is typically a bad thing. And that leads to different things like obesity, diabetes, that sort of thing. And people look for these diet drinks, they call them, uh, that are sweetened with the sucralose instead of the carbohydrates. So um, that's where you see the significance with the um, sucralose is, you know, people are looking at this thinking it's a healthier alternative, but in reality, we're not. We're not there yet, I don't think. Um, so giving you some of the specifics from uh, one of their graphics, I really like this one. So as we said, the sucralose was calorically free, and they were giving the study participants that consumed just the carbohydrate uh, 120 calories, so 30 grams of straight sugar. Doesn't that sound nice? And again, they had literally the same effect. So from a physiological standpoint, even though the sucralose had no calories to it, because as we claim the body is indigestible, the body cannot digest it, it had the same impact on blood sugar and insulin sensitivity as the straight sugar did. Now, the combination 
of the sucralose with the carbohydrate. Now, the one thing I didn't like in this study is the combination used maltodextrin, which is a type of corn sugar. Well, the straight carbohydrate group used sucrose, which, as you know, is um, just simple sugar. So I don't know why we changed the carb source between those two groups. Um, just kind of a little inconsistency. But clearly, the combination was not only detrimental to insulin sensitivity, but detrimental to blood sugar levels. And I often think about this because think of how often you consume a high-carbohydrate meal with a artificially sweetened meal or uh, food item or something along those lines. So what I mean by that is these artificial sweeteners like sucralose are in everything. Supplements, um, food items, protein bars, uh, drinks, they kind of sneak into so many different places. And how often are you consuming something like that with a high carbohydrate meal? So maybe it's your protein shake after you work out and maybe you're having that with your um, breakfast or whatever meal you're eating. And since the modern American diet is very high in carbohydrates, odds are you're coupling that sucralose uh, artificial sweetener with some form of carbohydrate. Now, say you're out to eat, right? Maybe you go to McDonald's or Burger King or Wendy's or one of these other fabulous uh, small, you know, small local restaurants that are allowed to be open during the pandemic. Um, basically, you go there and you could get your Diet Coke or Diet Soda or whatever and pair that with something else from the menu, right? So maybe you get your diet drink and you get a Big Mac and fries, but you have to get dessert, right? It's the one time you go there and the McFlurry machine is working, so you get one of them too, right? You got to have dessert. Well, you're basically coupling a ton of sugar with a ton of artificial sweetener, and not to mention all of the other downsides of you know, the quality of fast food and that sort of thing. And, you know, a lot of people look at the state of the country right now and they're asking, okay, why are we here? You know, why are we in this situation? And so many people are very quick to point out, well, you know, this person didn't wear a mask this day, so it's their fault. Or, oh, you know, those people got together, it's their fault. No other country is struggling with the pandemic as much as we are. And, you know, I saw this thing earlier about Japan, how Japan never went into a shutdown or a lockdown, and they've had less than a thousand deaths and that sort of thing. And as you may know, Japan is one of the healthier countries in the world. Um, they have very good health and health outcomes and that sort of thing. And part of the reason, I think, is the way they approach their food supply and what they eat. They eat very clean, very healthy, and when you compare that to the modern American diet, a lot of people here are not eating healthy. Hot dogs, chicken nuggets, that's not healthy. Most of our, um, you know, when you go to the grocery store, if you're buying regular ground beef or, you know, regular chicken, regular eggs, that stuff is coming straight from feedlots. 
it's coming from commercial farms, not, you know, local sustainable agriculture farms, not free range, cage free, not grass fed, grass finished, organic. And I don't think people understand how important it is to be putting the right meats and right foods into your body and how detrimental the wrong fuel can be. And it's not just the meat, it's everything. Looking at the vegetables, there's a a huge outrage against the uh, plant-based burgers because they're actually more harmful to the environment than the regular beef burgers. Uh, It takes more um, carbon um, emissions, so basically more... um, I'm trying to think of the exact word I'm looking for. Um, I don't have my notes on this right in front of me at the moment. But essentially, you're having more of a detrimental impact on your carbon dioxide emissions. I think that's what I was looking for. Um, to produce one of these plant-based burgers than you would a uh, regular beef burger. And they're worse for your health, but they're being marketed as a healthy alternative because they're plant-based. And I actually had a conversation about uh, plant-based foods with someone earlier because I tend to fall into a keto or paleo kind of approach to eating. And I don't think um, many people realize that, you know, they think if it comes from a plant, it's good for them, it's healthy but I don't think that always holds true. So we'll break this down one by one. We'll start with bread. So a lot of people say, you know, bread, it comes from a plant, right? Wheat, whole wheat, whole grain. Therefore, it's good for you. It's healthy. It has two, two and a half grams of fiber per slice. Therefore, it's healthy. It's good for my heart, right? But they don't look into the research about the effects that gluten has on the body. And this is not just for people with celiac disease, but all people. A lot of people are gluten intolerant or have gluten sensitivities, even though they're not diagnosed with celiac disease. And that's a problem because they're going to keep putting the gluten into their uh, body and their body's not going to like that. And it's going to respond with a lot of bad things, uh, increased inflammation, inflammation of the gut lining specifically. Uh, we see expansion of the gap junctions in the uh, gut itself, so in the intestines, and that creates what we call a leaky gut situation where the uh, food that you've broken down and digested and is in your intestines has the potential to leak out into the rest of your body. And that is gross and disgusting and a problem. And again, that ties into the systemic inflammation that we talked about in last week uh, with the uh, the corona there, uh, the CK word uh, kind of thing that seems to keep getting me censored for some reason. Um, but essentially, as you increase systemic inflammation, you're body is going to have a lot of issues. Uh, So whenever there's inflammation, we usually use it as a signal to tell our body where to uh, heal. So if you exercise, your muscles are probably going to be inflamed after you exercise. And that's good because your body knows 
to send nutrients and repair things such as amino acids for the muscles to that area of inflammation. Well, imagine what your body would be doing if you had systemic inflammation, meaning you are inflamed all over. Think of, you know, we're sending one fire truck to the fire scene, right? One fire truck shows up and the whole block is on fire. Okay, that's basically what your body is trying to do and how it's trying to deal with systemic inflammation. It's fighting a uphill losing battle. And we know that grains and whole wheat and bread and gluten specifically tie right into that. And yet we continue to market it as a health food. So with that, I'm just going to go to vegetables as a whole and paint them with a very broad brush. So there are some vegetables we know that are very good for us. Example, sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes are a great food, and I think most people would agree that everyone should be consuming sweet potatoes. Great. But, downside, raw sweet potatoes, raw potatoes contain cyanide and can kill you. So you have to cook them and prep them. Now, with that, most vegetables contain a variety of different defense mechanisms. Vegetables do not want to be eaten. They do not want to be consumed. Fruits, on the other hand, have evolved to be eaten and to be consumed. So they um, actually reproduce when animals eat them because they eat the seeds and then they're dispersed elsewhere. So fruits need something to eat them in order to reproduce and as such they've evolved they taste sweet they taste good they're seasonal people typically like fruits and there's pretty much always a lot of seeds think about your typical strawberry for example now again going back to the vegetables they have those plant defense mechanisms and we don't fully understand all of them we're still learning because plants are pretty complicated We don't know all the different effects that they're going to have on our body. Because, let's face it, if we're going to eat a vegetable, it's no longer plugged into the ground, right? It's no longer growing. So are the various plant hormones and defense processes and toxins still active when we eat it or not? There's not a whole lot of research that indicates one way or the other. Now... As such, it's kind of interesting how we market vegetables and plant-based things as, you know, these big health foods when we haven't looked into the full story on them. Um, So I usually recommend doing some kind of preparation and prep into whatever vegetable you're going to consume before you consume it. So, for example, um, you might kind of cook spinach instead of eating raw spinach. Um, You might ferment different things or soak or sprout different things. Um, So going back to the grains, uh, if you're going to consume grains, they typically recommend sprouted grains instead of just whole grain, that sort of thing. Uh, Just kind of makes it easier on your body if you are going to uh, consume them. So just trying to do different things wanting where you can to shut down the plant defense mechanisms and 
Again, this is kind of a gray area because there's not a whole lot of research that I've seen. There's not a whole big wealth of knowledge and evidence about this stuff. Uh, if anyone knows anyone who's studied plants and their consumption and impacts on the human body extensively, please let me know. I'd love to have them on the show to do this a little more justice than I'm doing. Um, but essentially, that's our little take on food. I know we started on sucralose and now we're ending with vegetables and whole grains. Uh, but yeah, a little bit of a a little bit of a tangent, but a productive and a good one at that. So going on to high-intensity interval training. So we're going to look at hit shock microcycles used for enhancing sports performance. So this sounds like something that everyone's going to really enjoy, right? So hit is pretty popular, uh, especially right now with... Um, home workouts and that sort of thing becoming a big thing. HIT is very popular for improving cardiovascular fitness as well, and it tends to maintain muscle mass better than if you were doing, you know, long duration steady state kind of cardio. So we use that HIT strategy in athletes to again improve overall athletic fitness, endurance, sport specific performance, that sort of thing. Um, and you know, your traditional hit kind of workouts usually use multiple micro cycles. So seven to 10 days where they'll use two to three hit sessions, uh, each day. So think about your stereotypical high school, two a days, conditioning practices, that sort of thing. And, um, they typically look at that, um, from a research standpoint, they, find that HIT is going to give you maximal benefits at about six weeks. So if you did those um, different micro cycles, so seven to 10 days of HIT, rest period, and then repeat for six weeks, you would be noticing some rather substantial benefits. And it's interesting because um, I've actually done a little self-experiment with uh, Martin Gabala's 60-75 interval workout before. And I've noticed that just after doing it two or three times, I'm stronger and faster and more in shape from a hit standpoint, if that makes sense. Um, It's brutal and it's very difficult, but it gives you results rather quickly and easily. Um, So going back to the study now and more on HIT. Basically, they've um, looked at recent years, we're seeing kind of a shift with HIT, where they use higher frequency of HIT sessions uh, with different intervals of microcycles. So we use these HIT shock microcycles. And you might have heard me or seen me talk about these before. Um, I know this is a common thing I use with some of my clients, where we'll build in these hit sessions throughout their day at strategic times to increase their conditioning level. So it might be a quick five-minute hit session that they're doing four or five times a day for a week or two to really ramp up their cardiovascular fitness or to increase caloric expenditure during the day, that sort of thing. Um, but essentially, these microcycles could be used as a 
periodization approach to HIIT and cardiovascular endurance. Uh, and this is a huge tool that we could use in athletics. Um, so in this article, they went through a lot of different things that we're going to talk about, such as the formatting and design of a optimal microcycle in their um, form, well, in their terms, uh, the effects of hit on performance and endurance, different ways that they can improve their models, uh, that sort of thing. So with that, we're going to break this down one by one. Um, so the first section here, just looking at their definition of hit and sustainability of hit in athletes. Um, so basically, they're looking at these short training blocks, as we talked about, that are implemented to provide high stimulus for endurance adaptation specifically. So they're looking at periods shorter than 28 days. So you don't want to be doing this for a long period of time, or you could also do it in a ratio format where they do um, basically two or less of these hit sessions every three days. So basically two on, one off, or one on, two off. That probably varies based on intensity. Obviously, higher intensity, you're going to want more time to recover uh, and that sort of thing. And they've even worked up to 11 sessions in a six-day period, followed by five to seven days of rest. So there are a variety of different ways you can approach this. And this is great from a training standpoint, because you can kind of do what works for you, um, whether you're a trainer, a coach, whatever. Um, you could do a, you know, like we said, a whole periodization so three to four weeks of hit, you could do a mini cycle, like we said there, where we do like 11 or 12 sessions in five or six days. Or you could even do that ratio and kind of sprinkle it in throughout everyday life for a longer period of time. So there's a lot of freedom to modify this and there's a lot of different models. Um, and basically, as we said, these can go up to twice a day. So you could do a AM, PM, that sort of thing. Uh, so we've got a little chart here I'm going to walk you through. You could The way they're looking at the AM, PM approach here, if we're doing two-a-days, you would do three days of hit in the morning for the, for the start, right? Get the athlete or the client or whoever adjusted and used to the hit workout. Then after the third day, take a day off. Day five hit them with both a a.m. and p.m. hit session. So we do our two-a-day. We don't see another two-a-day until day 12. So in a 12 or 13 section uh, or 12 or 13 day cycle, we're looking at two or three two-a-days max. And we're looking at two or three rest days, and the rest would be one per day hit sessions. Looking at the sustainability with that a little more. Basically, HIT is intensive. And the article 
very quickly recognize is that it is very easy to put an athlete in a state where they're overreaching or overtraining uh, as a result of hit, and you need to allow time to recover and let these adaptations really take hold. And that's why they acknowledged that they um, built in the rest days to their different uh, programmings. So they looked at different levels of physical stress here, and they referenced some different studies for this. So in one that they referenced, they looked at 15 hit sessions over 14 days. So 14-day period, two weeks, we put 15 sessions in there, and it reduced energy. Uh, They looked at different wellness scores and scales and uh, outcome measures and that sort of thing. And they lost, uh, basically, the uh, study participants were um, mentally not in as good of a place. They were tired, they were fatigued, they were not as willing to train after doing that, which obviously that's a lot to push through. Um, So with that, it's important to know that you have to allow for recovery to occur because HIT is a very highly demanding, highly intense form of training. Now, there are a lot of great uh, physiological responses to HIT. So this is one of the most effective ways to increase your VO2 max, lactate threshold, and movement economy. And one of the key things for this in what I've seen separate from this article is mitochondrial biogenesis. And I think Martin Gabala gets into this a little bit. Essentially, HIT is an exhausting activity for your heart, your lungs, and your body as a whole because it has to speed up, slow down a lot. It's difficult. And your body is going to respond and adapt accordingly. So one of the ways it does this is by signaling your cells to make more mitochondria. So now you have more mitochondria, which as you know, are the uh, powerhouses of the cell, the energy producers. So now you have the ability to produce more energy. And that energy can be used for a variety of processes, such as getting rid of waste or continuing to fuel whatever endurance activity you're looking into, which, as you know, is a good thing. Another key thing is not just the creation of new mitochondria, but improving the ones you already have the existing mitochondria in the body become bigger and they function more effectively and efficiently. Uh, In a lot of different metabolic diseases, as we've talked about, there is a hallmark theme of mitochondrial dysfunction. There's something wrong with their energy system and energy production and energy utilization that ties into their mitochondria. So the fact that HIT can be used to kind of clear this up and cause a variety of adaptations to the cardiovascular and pulmonary system. So improved blood flow, improved resting heart rate, improved VO2 and VO2 max. So essentially, you're improving the amount of oxygen you can use at your maximum threshold, which obviously the more oxygen you can move through your body, the more you're going to be able to work because that will enable you to get rid of more carbon dioxide waste, that sort of thing. So they've shown in this study that 
hit is more effective than steady state, which matches again Martin Gabala's work, um, where he Martin Gabala is one of my favorite um, exercise physiologists as far as endurance training goes, and his uh, research has shown ten minutes of high intense intervals can give you the equivalent of five hours of steady state cardio. So again, these intervals and these um, shock sessions are very powerful tools that you can add to your training arsenal and your athlete's arsenal, again, if it's implemented properly. Uh, that key there of you know, recovery continues to show itself up or uh, re- reappear. So highly recommend um, keeping tabs on that. So looking at a application here. So let's say we're looking at a team sport that involves endurance, field hockey, lacrosse, soccer, that sort of thing. How would we put together a training program for a athlete that fits that field sport kind of category that uses these hit microcycles? How, what would we see? So they actually broke this up into a little calendar here. So they start with a continuous protocol. Um, so working our way down this table here. And if you need this article, let me know. Um, I will see if I can get that for you. So they have three, uh, five different hit protocols lined up. And they break it down into sets and interval duration in minutes. So kind of like in the weight room, you think of sets and reps. Here we're thinking of sets and time. So they start with four sets of three-minute intervals. Uh, Then they do a two-by-eight, three-by-three, four-by-four, and two-by-seven. So there's a few different uh, breakups there. And then they talk about the... uh, intraset uh, work. So for the first one there, the four by three, you're going at a continuous rate of speed for three minutes. Your goal is to keep your heart rate above 90% of your heart rate max. And then your um, rest period, which is three minutes. So you're in a one-to-one rest to work ratio. And your rest is to be Either, you know, it's low intensity is basically what they're getting at is low intensity jogging, walking, that sort of thing. So something lighter. Um, The two by eight, which would be, um, you know, their next progression here is a two sets of eight minutes. In those eight minutes, you're doing 15 seconds hard, 15 seconds medium, and you're looking for over uh, 100 of your, I'm not sure what unit they're using there, but you're looking at extreme intensity here with the 2 by 8 and then you're uh, rewarded with 10 minutes of rest in between. So that's kind of a good thing because, you know, if you're going 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off for 8 minutes, you're going to need a little time to rest and recover after that. Uh, next, they did the 3x3, three three, as we mentioned, and here they're looking for a 7-second burst all out. So think about that 100-meter sprint kind of speed. 
50 meter sprint kind of speed all out followed by 20 to 25 seconds of medium intensity so all out medium intensity all out medium intensity that sort of thing uh, and then you get the 10 minutes to recover in between sets and same thing there, low intensity, that sort of thing. Um, so this is the kind of thing that if you're a coach, you would probably need a stopwatch and a whistle for or to program it into different sport watches and that sort of thing. Um, for the next one, they did a four by four continuous pace. So instead of the four by three, they just added a minute to that. It's identical. Uh, one thing with that, your in uh, rest period between sets is still three minutes. So instead of a one-to-one work-to-rest ratio, now you've got a four-to-three work-to-rest ratio. So the scales have kind of tipped the other way, and you have more time to work and less time to recover. Uh, and the last one I think I mentioned was the two-by-seven, where for seven minutes you're doing... 20 seconds on and 20 seconds at a medium intensity so you're going nearly all out for 20 seconds and then kind of recovering a bit but not a full light recovery i mean like a you know still jogging moving kind of recovery that one they give you three minutes between sets and your recovery is supposed to be passive so just not a whole lot of anything going on and I realized that was probably hard to keep track of. Uh, their table in here makes it a lot easier to understand and digest. Um, but basically, the way they break down uh, implementing these workouts is on the first day, you do both A and B. So you do the 4x3 and the 2x8. Day 2, you do the C workout, so a 3x3. Three three. And then day 3, you have off. And then they go... Um, into workout D and so on from there. So basically that cycle goes A, B, C, off, and then uh, progresses from there. So on day one, you're doing A and B on the same day. There's your two a day. Day eight, you're doing A and B on the same day. Again, there's two or three full, there's three full rest days built into that 13 day cycle. And after those 14 days um, are up, they do a week of recovery from the hip because, again, this is intense. Um, so looking at it more from an endurance standpoint, so maybe more cross-country, track and field, triathlete, that sort of thing, um, essentially the um, instead of changing the rate during sets... Uh, we're looking at more continuous. So they break this up into a 5 by 6 minute, a 4 by 4 minute, a 6 by 5 minute, and a 6 by 200. And they're all at continuous rates of speed. They're all at 90% your heart rate max or above. And the uh, intraset recovery time ranges from 2 to 10 minutes. Um, I think 10 is a little bit long personally but going with the two theme you know five sets of six minutes that's 30 minutes if you did two minutes of recovery in there that's 40 minutes a 40 minute run for most people is nothing um that are in the you know cross country and triathlete kind of um world so i 
really like uh, the concept that this article presents using high-intensity interval training as a periodized approach to endurance training. And I think this will make endurance training more effective and efficient. And, you know, this article literally ends with the practical application that coaches should consider implementing at least two hit uh, sessions every three days for at least seven to 21 day periods. And, you know, this is something that they want to see as part of the preparation in um, an athlete's training protocol and conditioning. And, you know, this is something that I think was commonly missed in high school sports because we didn't have the best knowledge of intervals and their effectiveness. So key takeaways from this episode is if you're going to consume something with sucralose, then make sure it is not being consumed with carbohydrates because sucralose plus carbohydrates equals bad. And do high-intensity interval training. Uh, Try and do at least two workouts every three days for a period of 7 to 21 days. Um, so kind of like that micro cycle there and use that as a periodized approach to your endurance training to help you skyrocket your endurance gains. So with that, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Brown Body Podcast. Thank you as always for listening and supporting our show. If you like what we're doing, please feel free to like, subscribe, and share with a friend and make sure you follow us on social media at Braun Body, Braun with a W, on all platforms. Thank you again for listening. See you next week.